Hey, I'm Jamie Neal, host of 360 Yourself. In 2014, I had a breakdown and was hospitalized. Too much work, too much anxiety, too much coffee, not enough self-care and not enough balance. In the hospital, laying over my thoughts, I had to rethink my entire life. The doctor said I was overworked and my body gave up. Now, I'm not gonna say it wasn't scary, but it was a turning point for me. From there, I started to rebuild myself reading hundreds of self-help books and questioning everything from why do we have triggers? What is ego? What is persistence and motivation? What is manifesting? And what is identity? Many years later, someone recommended that I start a podcast. I was always curious about how others lead their lives. And thus, 360 Yourself was born, interviewing incredible minds on how they understand themselves and how they utilize knowledge and awareness to set out into their space. 360 Yourself is a dedicated podcast meeting brilliant and curious minds and looking at the world around them. I speak to artists, musicians, sports athletes, authors, CEOs, and experts in human behaviors, released every Sunday at 12 o'clock. I ask questions about their mindset, journey, values, ethos, to fully understand how each of their minds work and process information. How can we become more aware of ourselves to grow to the ultimate person we know we can be? How do you 360 yourself to 360 the world around you? If you do enjoy our episodes that you're listening to and certain themes and topics ignite within you, please visit our Instagram page at 360 underscore yourself to tell us how you're growing and learning. Or you can email us jamie at 360yourself.co.uk. That's jamie at 360yourself.co.uk. And I'll read out every episode at the end stories and comments from you, the audience, the 360 years. Thank you, and remember to 360 yourself. Hey, Stephen, how are you doing? Good morning. I'm very good, Jamie. How are you? Very, very well. Um, got my coffee in my hand, um, as always. <laughs> I've got, and I, I, I recently ran out of honey. And um, as most of my friends know, I can't have coffee without honey. I just not the same thing. I don't know. How do you take do you your... Do you want me to run around with some? Because I've got some. <laughs> no, no, no. I bought, because I, obviously, I, also, I'm from Devon, and I like really good honey. Like, I'd rather have good honey. Are you saying I've got cheap honey? No, I've, no, I've no. I've got no, good no, honey. Please. I've got, I seriously got good honey. You're oh, southwest, you? right? Yeah, southwest. southwest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my, I'm around the corner. You're around I'll the corner. see you in 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, so what do you, what do you usually have? Do you have coffee? Do you have tea? What do you usually have? Uh, I'm, I'm actually on like a, I'm on a, a some kind of pucker tea called something like Feel New Revive. I love that. That's I mean, what they, that's what I'm bringing it. They have so many different types of teas now. Didn't they? Yeah. Didn't, didn't they have um like even like biscuits and crisps? They have like these really weird. I mean, it's going in a different direction, but they have these really weird um, announcements sometimes. And they're like, I'm gonna put like pumpkin with chili and yeah. like whatever it is and then they come out and you're like who actually wants to eat these things let me tell you about crisps the evolution of crisps has gone like this you go to a theater you can buy some crisps first of all they're in like a can big can and they cost four quid and they said they're made in yorkshire let me tell you something in yorkshire you would not pay four quid for crisps and you would never put them in a can they're in a bag so there you go there. i'm not yeah did you also hear there's a guy called Philip Joel, uh, who's a who's a choreographer um, and director yeah. on Twitter. And I, I don't know if it, how true this is, but he tweeted that there was a, a person who got arrested or or escorted out um, because they took fish and chips into the theatre, like actual fish and chips. 
<laughs> I don't know. I hope it was true. Um, yeah, it's, they're probably from Yorkshire, actually. And I, 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 I applaud them and commend them on that. God. I bet it was a Friday. It would be fish and chips on a Friday. A, it probably was a Friday. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah, uh, no we, joke. In, in okay, so this is how this is how uh, Devon I am. So in Devon, my fish and chips right are four pound yeah. fifty, right? And it's like a yeah. jumbo yeah. fish and chips. You go to London, oh they're easily like I've that thirteen, fourteen pounds. I've even paid twenty pound for fish and chip, fish and chips before, and it's probably not even from like the UK. It's probably from like russia or something like it's not even from our water no. but like it's from I, yeah it's from iceland and i don't mean the country <laughs> yeah but it's yeah but i mean with with where i'm from in devon in plymouth off like my fish is from there like i can go to the harbor in the morning at 6 a.m and pick it up like that's how yeah. fresh it is and then you go to and i was i found out recently in brighton um that the fish is not from brighton it's not it's not from there it's actually it's a, it's from russia they get them yeah, it's very weird because obviously they have a harbour, but they stopped it many, many years ago. And now you think you're eating like fish and chips. Local, right local catch. Yeah, local yeah. catch from Russia. Crazy. Anywho, uh, swiftly on. Um, it's yeah. lovely to have you on 360 yourself. Um, I'm a huge fan. I was saying beforehand, uh, oh, my inner child you. is screaming. Um, so <laughs> basically, I would love to talk to you about um, your journey. Like you have done some amazing pieces of work. I mean, for for most people, I think most people would know you from Curious Incident of the Dog of the Night, which obviously was like iconic. Um, American Idiot, Once, uh, Peter and the Star Catcher, uh, Rocky the Musical. I mean, the list goes on, and also Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, uh, which is on West End and Broadway. Um, I mean, these are these are iconic, big big names. I expressed to everyone um how brilliant harry potter is i mean it is incredible how they do these things but what i want to know is let's go back to the beginning um and figure out well hopefully me and you can piece together how it all happened <laughs> so yeah look I, I think it ends up being I, i'm often asked to speak to students about the industry and careers. And, and in some ways, I think I'm a, I'm a great advocate for it. And other times I'm a really bad one because I didn't study this at all. <clears throat> and I think part of that was, I just never imagined you could have a career like this because when I was a little kid, I did amateur dramatics in Huddersfield where I was born. And, you know, I was in, I think I was in Anything Goes and I think I was in The Wiz or, or something like that. And, you know, nobody got paid. And nobody around me that I ever knew working in theatre was on a salary. So it was never a job. So consequently, I never uh, I never studied it. It was never an option that you would have a career or you'd be paid to do these things. And I never knew anybody that got paid to do these things. It always seemed to be people in London and famous people. And so I ended up studying things like politics and economics and English. And weirdly... Both myself and John Tiffany, who I've worked with quite a lot over the years, we were at college together, and there was a, there was a, a drama teacher there, and she was a bit like, "Hey, you two, come here. Um, I'm doing anything goes. I'll see you. I'll see you at the end of school today." And it was this thing where somebody sees something that you're into and actually pulls it out of you. So I would say that when I was at sixth form college, I, Liz Hayward, who was our, who didn't even teach, wasn't even my tutor, but she was pulling me out of classes to go and do anything goes and. It was really interesting that I went to university, studied English at Swansea University. So right up until that 20, 
none of this was applicable to me at all. I'd always loved music, um, but not necessarily musicals. Um, I'd been to the theatre three times in my life. Um, so it was a, a surprise to everybody. That I, I went, I, a friend of mine was a journalist on a student newspaper. She took me to see a show by a company called Volcano. And I saw this piece and I was like, what is that? And it was these four performers. The music was like big techno. And they kind of beat the crap out of each other for, for an hour. And, the, and then there was, and at the end of it, they somehow told the story of Medea. And I couldn't believe what they'd done. And I, 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 my, my senses were blasted. And also, whilst it was still incredible, I was like, God, I'd love to try that. And I've never, I'd never looked at a piece of theatre and thought I'd like to try it. And then the week after I'd seen it, they put some posters around university saying, we're running a workshop. Anybody wants to come, can come. So I turned up in this hall and... Um, they just started to make us do really like really demanding things in this room, like smashing ourselves around and really very aggressive physical theater. And I just found myself doing it and I didn't know how I was doing it. I just could. Mm-hmm. So I so went around my parents and said that, and I saw at a university, I met Scott Graham, who I formed Frantic Assembly with. Um, and we were in the drama society and he, you know, he was the prompt, he was a stand-in on educated reader and I was the prompt or something like that. And we started having a conversation about theater. And then I joined Volcano as a student and they made this production called Savages. And it was mind blowingly kind of, uh, well, it was a light bulb moment. I was in this production, it was really avant-garde and uh, we ended up taking it to Edinburgh and we called ourselves Frantic Theater Company because that's exactly what we were. And we had our first two nights, we had a total audience number of 21. But on the second night, our cast outnumbered the audience, but one of them was in was a reviewer from the list. He gave us this amazing review, and the rest of them were sold out. So all of a sudden, we were like, oh, might we form a theatre company when we leave university? But nobody knew who we were. And Volcano said, just go for it. Just do it. Try it. So uh, the phone call to my parents when I told them I was forming a theatre company was less traumatic than phoning my parents to tell them that I was gay. Um just because they were really shocked by the second and not so shocked by the first. <laughs> but it's it's funny how that's the, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I've never been before, and I, I know that's a, a horrible kind of like thing to say because I've always wanted to go. I just haven't had, I don't know, I've right. never got never gone to it. And I and I I've heard so many brilliant stories and people's careers have been made from Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um yeah. And it's it, yeah, it's made a lot of people um, and put them in the limelight. And then they they, they yeah. transfer. I think it was also six the musical. I think started at mm-hmm. Edinburgh Festival and then came is obviously now in Broadway and West End. Uh, look, it's about as competitive as a market gets. There are literally hundreds of shows. I think the average audience is eight. So the minute you're selling out, you know you've done something right up there. I mean, you, there are there are also epic failures up there because uh, every time you get more than eight, you've taken out from somebody's eighth that they should expect. Yeah. But at the same time, <coughs> excuse me, it is incredibly democratic. You can't really advertise up there, so it it really is word of mouth, mm-hmm. and you get found out. And um, yeah, we were just very lucky that we turned up at a time when there wasn't a lot of work like that being made. We were wanting to make theatre for 20 to 30-year-olds. And that was our big remit. Mm-hmm. And people weren't really making that kind of work. And it was very loud and aggressive and physically really demanding. Um, and it was kind of a mixture between text and dance and 
at times acrobatics and uh yeah we just seem to be filling a niche and it was just incredibly successful and it, it does feel very um it was such a positive response to work that at the time we're like we don't know what we're doing um and so as a result of that we started to bring in what what used to be choreographers and asking them to come and direct frantic assembly shows so that year on year each show we made we would learn more about choreography and each choreographer taught us a different style of choreography mm. um so we were learning over those years i guess that was our training or as close as i got to any kind of formal training because that's how i discovered all of the material and all the um know-how about how to put a show together how to arrange bodies in space I was in them as well, so it's, I was learning both sides of it. <clears throat> uh -huh. um, so yeah, I, I had a great education, but it was never in a formal in, um, institution, mm. and it's led to it's led to me being, <clears throat> in some ways, and I think back on it all, I think that because I don't have a basis on which to operate from, I can never fail that. I, I can never not do what I should be doing. And so I think I always choose things that I don't know how to do because I can afford not to know how to do it. To never did know how to do anything. Yeah, I just like you don't had have to a, chance. Like, I think when people go to like ballet schools and stuff. They have such like a rule book of like how things are done, yeah. like how your body moves. But actually, if you didn't train, you just you just sort of do what's natural. No. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's also I mean, there's work that I see which is exquisite, and I couldn't, I could never do that. And you look at it and go, that's what your training. Gives yeah, you. there was there was a. <laughs> With the new West Side Story film, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I did, yeah, incredible, incredible. And the guy, I can't remember what his name is, but I think he's with the New York City Justin family. Peck, yeah, Justin Peck's work is stunning, and yeah. I mean, something like that, like, yeah. How would I mean, unless you, I mean, unless you went to like proper ballet school and was in a ballet company and stuff, like yeah. that work is just divine, yeah. Um, you're not so, going to get that without some serious background, yeah, yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you got so. You did the company and then you went into <clears> theatre <throat> with um, John Tiffany, who's obviously a classmate. And then you won your first Olivier uh, in 2009. Um, mm. was, it was for the show was called Black Watch, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So that yeah. was about a Scottish regiment. Yeah, it was. They, um, they'd just been disbanded and deployed from Afghanistan. Um, yeah, it was quite a, it was quite a, an issue at the time. And again, you know, it was, it, there was a show where it was about the so it was you know about the soldiers who came back to Scotland, and when they came back, there was zero um, funding left for them when they decompressed. So they came back and couldn't hold down jobs, um, and yet seen their mates been blown apart and uh, very contentious at the time. We met, um, well, actually, the writer Greg Burke met lots of the soldiers, and they. They were, you know, just left high and dry. Um, so it was also the idea about how on earth do you make a physical piece about soldiers without it looking less than the brutal kind of nature of what they do and how they have to operate. Um, it was also never supposed to tour. It played in a drill hall in Edinburgh and National Theatre of Scotland said, just make the show of your lives because this will never go anywhere else. We can't tour it. But of course, it's the show that then toured for six years and became the kind of signature piece for most of the creatives because that's the nature of these things um but it, yeah it was it was a big piece and uh, it really was one of those things where we all just went for it um and then it was also it was seen it went to america a couple of times and it was seen by a director called michael mayer the guy that i'm working with at the moment and he asked me to go and do some work with him on um at the time it was just a green day project so 
I'd been working for maybe 10, 15 years with Frantic Assembly and doing freelance choreography with John and occasional other pieces, but not very much. And then, so after 15 or so years, I ended up then getting the start of my second career in the US where I'm a choreographer. Whereas over here, I was a director and I ran Frantic Assembly. So age 30 something, I'm suddenly like, oh, oh, now I'm a choreographer. And in America, everybody knows what thinks I'm a choreographer with not really as a director. And everybody here knew that I was a director more than a choreographer. So it, it was, I was very, very, very lucky. I got a second kind of second throw at a point where I just didn't, I didn't think there was one to be had. Mm -hmm. But that's been, that's been most of my, my career, actually. Everything's been a bit of a surprise. Well, yeah, um, I mean, a lot of the, we, we recently had um, Alice, Alice Brooks on, who's um, a DP who just did um, In the Heights and Tick -tick oh, yeah. Netflix, um, and it's coming up shortly. Uh, it will be really soon. And uh, she was saying that some of the cl her collaborators, she also went to university with them. And, and then years mm -hmm. later, they start working. It's the same thing with you and John Tiffany. Like, it is, it's not luck, but it's just how the universe works, that you guys were classmates. Yeah. You guys became very su successful together. And that's usually how it usually works, that you find your sort of, like, work life mates, um, and then you just yeah. create together and you create amazing stuff and then you rise together. Yeah, I, th I think I've never looked at a model of success in this industry and thought I should apply myself to it. Mm. I think just because I didn't ever start out from there. So, yeah, I think, I mean, even with John, we didn't, we, I'd started Frantic. I think I'd made, I think we were, I was at Frantic for at least eight or nine years before John and I decided to work together. He was making theatre over here in the kind of new writing world and I was making physical theatre over here so it was quite a while before we actually decided to make anything together mm -hmm. um so yeah it's, it's been it's it's been a really wild ride I have to say and everything has been a bit of a I could never predict the next next two years ever mm. yeah it's crazy isn't it I mean we, I mean we, we were talking about just recently about how Covid hit obviously theatre quite badly and how we're now in this new space of of experiences and um theater and how mm. everyone's so every, i mean everyone has changed coming out of covid um we're creating differently we're working differently um yeah it, it, it's it's exciting but it's also kind of jarring in a way that we're being For sure i'm yeah i, I mean, we, we were one of the first to get closed down completely and we we're one of the last industries to come back into any kind of existence during that time, I was I, I was part of an organisation who were ongoing and amazing called Freelancers Make Theatre Work, and their the efforts that have been made to lobby on behalf of and try to put together a decimated industry it is it's absolutely stunning the kind of work that's coming out from that organisation. And one of the I suppose one of the first things that was really shocking was to realise that we were seventy percent of the of the industry. I don't think freelancers knew that they were that um, that kind of uh, that they made up so much of of theatre, and particularly when you looked at how the government gave over twenty six million to um, to buildings, and of course none of that trickled down to freelancers, and freelancers were actually the majority of people that needed it. So it started there. Mm. So I think during lockdown, what happened is information starts to be disseminated, and I think most freelancers now, I would hope, are informed a little bit more. Um, and there are now resources to help. I mean, it's still absolutely shocking uh, just what's happened and what's sl slightly um, 
unnerving is that you don't quite realize who hasn't come back yet until you're kind of going oh well can we just audition so and so oh no well actually they've become a carpenter in south wales now so you you don't really we haven't we're not really seeing the uh the full effect of what's happened yeah. i think also if you think about what happened during lockdown um i mean the whole me too thing was still really kind of getting it's getting its center put together black lives matter became a, a, a huge event and and very timely so all of this happened when none of us were in the room and then we all understand completely that everything has changed and you go back into the room and you're supposed to do what you do but differently and nobody was making work while that happened so we weren't actually proactive in that we weren't doing anything within the realm of theater while it was going on so all you know is everything's changed everything's different but you're not told how to be different you just have to keep going and hope for the best so it it, it does feel um if if there was ever a feeling of imposter syndrome or not quite knowing what you're doing in the room it's now tenfold because even if you weren't feeling imposter syndrome you're certainly feeling a sense of i don't know if i'm doing am i am, is this am i you know am i being open with this am, is this um am i being diversely minded and so it's um it's good in the sense that the room doesn't have that natural, oh, let's just blast through this. You, you are way more considerate towards individuals in the room. Language has become a thing, again, which is always critical, I think. Um, so there's lots to be grateful for. It just, it, and it makes people tentative. And if you're not careful, it can really undermine your confidence. But if you look at it another way, it just means you're really present in the room. You are really aware of how everybody's feeling and thinking and looking, and you are aware of what your role is and your responsibility, and also the effects that you have on people in the room, which if you've been working for a number of years, you, that, that erodes and you just do your thing. And at the moment, it's not enough to do your thing. You have to be doing a thing which considers other people um, way more. And I, I, I for one, I'm actually, I, I imagine it's great. It's great for me, I think. I've been around long enough to probably have gotten a bit lazy about certain things and just certainly not in terms of um, a sense of a diverse room because that's been happening in theatre for a long time. That's not, that's not really been a problem. Um, but certainly in terms of the industry and choreographers and where they are and how they need to be um, lifted and presented and uh, given opportunities. And uh, if that's not in terms of direct work then surely mentorship has a big part to play in that so yeah there's a lot to, to going on there's a lot to be thinking about and it's mm. healthy it's definitely healthy yeah and it's, it's even just like I, I even think about people getting out of i mean i went to a theater production uh, a couple of weeks ago and then they at the end said uh, just thank you so much you just for even coming out and supporting i think that that's also never heard of that people are trying to overcome as well because it, there obviously it's still there's still mm. covid going around but we get we're we're humans of uh comfort and we get into routines and then because we haven't left well some people haven't left and gone to theater as much as they would like to it's then you have to then go oh do i really want to go to theater or just want to sit on the couch um and oh, that, totally yeah <clears throat> and, that's, and that's why all these digital devices now um, and experiences are are becoming more used than potentially but then I feel like there are like there's a lot more money going into immersive theatre because they're trying to get more physical experiences going. Yeah, I, I mean I think there's a few things there. 
One is the Netflix effect, which is, you know, even I would say I didn't watch much TV. I do now. Uh, last night, I just watched the first episode of Ozark and I, I, I was kind of, I could have wept with joy when it started. So we can't pretend that that hasn't happened. Yeah. And it's, and it's a damn sight cheaper than a theatre ticket. I, I personally, I, I'm, tr I'm trying to avoid anything that involves live capture on anything that I've done before, because I, I just think my job as it stands is to be in a room creating work that will happen in a theatre and that's my loyalty because that's got me where I am. So I, I, there's a few things I've worked on previously where they're like, would you be interested in life capture? And it's like, not really. Or can I do it in a few years when theatre's back again? And also, you know, my dad always said, he likened theatre, he just said it's just sitting in the dark with strangers. And in lots of ways, he's not wrong. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to think theatre's a bit more than that, um, but <laughs> he doesn't think so. But if that's, if that's ultimately what the action of it is for an audience, that's a lot to ask to sit in the dark with strangers during a pandemic. So yeah, it's it's um, it's um a big ask and I think it's gonna take a bit of time. And, um, it, you know, you're grateful for anybody that walks through the door these days. Indeed so. I mean, you did a project, um, I can't remember what year it was now, but it was for How to Train Your Dragon 2. And you and it was basically, mm. you were providing the choreography for computer animated sequence in the dream yeah. film. And so that is basically, sort of a different way of working but also yeah like we're talking about the idea of if something is real in your mind with when you have all these digital experiences now what is the difference mm. of a physical than a digital experience and then then you look at obviously the new matrix film and you they they hijack them into the obviously the matrix and then then they do all these amazing things and obviously it feels yeah. so real to them but actually it's not real it well it's, it's no. real in their mind but it's not real in their physical space i, I think this because i was listening to one of your podcasts and what somebody was talking about how they were talking or communicating with people that are um influencers and then they were using avatars instead of themselves and i was really shocked by that oh my god so i, I think yeah that's so shocking but, uh, so i think there's something going along with with where people expect reality to sit. Uh, there's a couple of things I'd say about that. One is on, on how to train your dragon. That was incredible to me because I was working with the actors with their you know bodysuits and ping pong balls on their things. And above them was already the rendered image of the cartoon character. Isn't that amazing? So I was choreographing down there. And that was beautiful. I have to say that was one of those moments I was like, whoa, this is great. I, I know for a fact, because last year I made a piece at the Armory in New York and it was... It was called, I made it with David Byrne and Christine Jones. And we had this idea, which was in the in the five and a half seconds when you could go outside, we made this piece where there was a spotlight. There were 93 spotlights in the armory and you walked in and over an hour, David Byrne instructed you how to dance through 15 songs in an hour. And at the end, wow. you, you've been sent a video of him dancing when you bought your ticket. And at the end, the song came on and you did a big unison dance number and you all left. And all the, all the spotlights were socially distanced. So you were all like six metres apart. It was a beautiful show and I was really proud of it. But I couldn't get a visa. So I couldn't get into New York to make it with them. So I did the whole thing by Zoom. Wow. Um, which also involves when we were doing the previews, they started at one in the morning, my time. So I was watching the show through a camera at 1 a.m. And at 1.30, I was doing notes with them. And it was, it, the show was beautiful. And it was, I re I'm really proud of what it did because people were in a big room with each other and just danced their face off. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of just the remove from it, 
it, it's it i would uh it's you suddenly realize what's essential to you and the problem with theatre at the moment is that it requires, for me anyway, the essence of it, it is because you all got together in a room. And what I used to find amazing with Harry Potter was when it, um, in the two-part show, when the audience come back for part two and either they've had dinner because it's taken place over one day or they've come on two consecutive nights, when they suddenly realise they're sat next to the same person that they were with either earlier that day or the night after, the night before, you suddenly really understand that you made a choice to all come together to this building on this night because these people are going to do this thing in front of you once only because it's different every night in some small way, infinitesimally small. But that for me is why theatre is crucial because it's you you decided to go and you were in the room, you were there. Mm. Um, and that that feels precious to me still. Yeah, I mean, because there was, there was a conversation, I think, with Ez Devlin many, many years ago. I think it was like the nether, I think the production was. And it was like, yeah, I, yeah. I had like some like background yeah. uh, um, digital experience. And they were talking yeah. about like how we include more digital experience potentially in theatre. And now, obviously, because of uh, COVID, cryptocurrency and NFTs and metaverses have become such a a more of a known thing that people are now becoming uh, or having avatars themselves and going around yeah. game platforms and stuff. And so then you think about will theatre then t is technically these rendered things technically theatre or because obviously theatre yeah. is a, a live experience. It's just a, it's just a but what's the, what what makes it actual difference that the what are the components is it because i'm in reality or if i take that into like literally the metaverse the digital world what would that be yeah i don't know i, I think theater by its nature you've already asked people to slip the leash on reality because mm. they're not in moscow they're not being hogwarts yeah they're never going to be in hogwarts so i feel that that's that's or everybody who sits and watches a piece of theater you've already engaged with them on that, that level it's yeah. a different <clears throat> result but the actual Human contract has been ticked. So for me, when people talk about, well, it's going to become more digital, it's like, well, I don't know if it is because the same thing is happening, but in a very different way. And interestingly, when John was talking about Harry Potter as a stage show originally, he just said, I don't want any big CGI stuff going on. It's absolute theatre. Um, and we committed to that. And I think in some ways, the minute you start to compete with or try to compete with a movie, um, regardless of whether it's Harry Potter or something else, I think we'd, I think theatre would start to show its limitations way before it starts to show its successes. Indeed. Um, so I've, I, I, I don't, I, I think theatre absolutely should, should, should um, be of, of the moment and should have modernity right through it. And I think it can, but it shouldn't concede the essence of it and it shouldn't try to compete with um, anything that's kind of um, on a digital non-present level and yeah. um, there was a lot of stuff that happened during lockdown of you know um online performances and uh, there was a lot of shakespeare monologues being online and but ultimately i felt like it was just people just passing time very effectively but the minute it came back to the seriousness business of getting people back in a room you know six been a case in point i mean that's you go there because these girls are there singing their faces off in front of you mm. i don't think i want to see a filmed version of six i want to see those girls go through that yeah you want, um, the, you want the, the vibration yes of course you do it's also interesting i remember years ago when swan lake was televised on bbc one on christmas day and there was this big thing saying well 
you'll televise it, but it'll never sell a ticket again because people have seen it. Swan Lake has blasted box office records ever since then because people who did see it on TV wanted to see it live. Yeah, so it's yeah. completely went the other way. So I do feel like the, the contract exists and it's healthy. And you've, then the commitment is just make sure it's damn good because a p- bad piece of theatre is it's expensive and it's annoying. Yeah, yeah. So going, so putting a pin in, in and talk discussing about experiences and I, I well, human experiences and, and theatre, I would like to know from a personal point of view, have it, has there only been a moment that you've had like, the what, your biggest challenge like what has been your biggest challenge in your life that you've needed to overcome because i think as, as talking beforehand uh, what i love is thinking about people who put people on pedestals that we are all human and we all go through the same experiences and we all go through the mm. same trials tribulations highs and lows <clears throat> i would just love to know like what has there been like anything that you've really struggled with or there's a challenge that you've had to overcome that's made you or maybe has like pivoted your mindset into a different way absolutely uh because i i was with i set up frantic assembly with scott graham and i was starting to get freelance work um and that started to build a bit of steam but frantic assembly was uh, its big thing was it was it was loyal to its members and if you were working for frantic assembly you, you were treated really well you got paid as well as possible and the return was you know we had amazing people that would come and work with and for us and often for quite long periods of time mm-hmm. um so i started to get freelance work and and frantic as a as a, as a company was saying well look it, why don't we have this thing where you, you can do up to six months a year freelance and the other six, you, you're with Frantic. It's as good as it gets. It, it's kind of the best contract I'd ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was I was on it for a couple of years, and it, it just didn't sit right. And I, I, real, I finally realised I'm being disloyal to, to the company. And yes, I'm bringing things back, uh, I, and I'm absolutely fulfilling the duty and contract, and we're making great work still. But I just felt like I was having an affair. And um, I decided I had to leave Frantic, um, which was really tricky and, and very complicated and not pleasant and, um, and just hard, really hard. And I think afterwards, I was thinking it should have been hard. It, I, it was 18 years of my life. Frantic gave me all the resources that I'd ever uh, had uh, my disposable it was because of frantic and um yeah it was brutal and afterwards i i didn't feel like i had any relationship to the company i think it just be, it disappeared um i just found it very hard to see the company anywhere i felt very bruised by it i think they felt very bruised by it we, we tried to make it a gentle departure and it just ended up not being possible. And it was just really, even just making the decision to leave was quite tricky. And yeah, you get frightened that you're not going to get any employment anymore because yeah, you're not frantic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you genuinely go through all of that. It was like, well, without frantic, what am I? Yeah. We would all, we would always said, we had this big thing with frantic, which our whole ethos was, we should be like a band. Not like, you know, I couldn't believe when theatre companies used to have the big title of their show and they'd be like, theatre company name. And ours was the opposite. Like, it's a frantic show. You'd just go and see whatever it is, wouldn't you? So, like, I'd, I'd buy a Massive Attack album because Massive Attack are ace, and I'd buy their albums. Mm. So our whole thing was brand first. And then you suddenly, you're not part of the company. You're like, oh, 
that it was brand first and you suddenly don't know who knows your name or who gives a toss who you write. So it was, it was really difficult. Mm. And um, I found that really hard. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure anyone who's been an entrepreneur of brands um, or businesses and they exit a company. Um, I listen to a lot of um, CEOs and founders uh, on several different podcasts about when they exit the, the experience and sometimes the trauma, sometimes the depression, mm. of like you've nurtured and you've grew this from the ground up and then suddenly you see it everywhere, but you're not attached to it and you're not going in day to day and you're not part of it. Oh, it's, totally. Yeah, it's hard. Also, I, I was a co-founder and I left it. I walked away from it. Yeah. I abandoned it. So this yeah. also, that was also. Well, I, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say the word abandoned. I mean, I think. Oh, I did. Yeah, well, I don't abandon I mean, outgrew i think that's sometimes what happens i think with com- with companies or businesses or founders they outgrow and maybe there's other interests or the company for instance needs to get bigger and they're not the person to to drive it forward it needs to never company etc yeah i don't the, the year that i left I, one of the reasons why i thought it was okay to go was because we made that's that particular we made a show for the national in london we made a piece for national theatre scotland and we made a piece for national theatre wales and I was like, if there's a moment where we can say we're good, it's now. Mm. But even that, it, it just didn't, it, all of the, on paper, it was going to be really easy. And I can tell you, none of it came to be, to feel like that. So it just, all I'm saying is it was meant to feel hard. And, I, and so now it's been long enough now that I'm glad it was because it just made it feel more vital to my well, to how I'd come to be who I was. It's a massive part of who I am. It's a huge part of my of my career and how, how I'm seen. How did you rebuild <clears throat> your identity? Because I think uh, I think a lot of people find that tricky as well when they leave publications or the, when they leave jobs and then they haven't got the title anymore. And I talk to a lot of people about that. Like, you are now you. You are not you with the head yeah. of whoever it is. How did you find rebuilding your identity? I think that bit I was okay with because I normally take, if I say yes to a job, it's because I don't know how I'm going to do it. Right, yeah. So, so after I did Blackwatch about the really brutal military show I did once, which is like, it's a brown hug of a show in a pub. It's very quiet. <clears throat> and I, so I, I just made sure I just had a huge learning curve each time. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't resort to what people might think I did and just try and keep surprising myself. Um, I think to try and be as innovative as possible because I didn't feel like I... Yeah, that's a good question, actually. I did find myself being quite particular about the pieces, but in a way I was trying to make sure I didn't fall into some kind of pattern, but that would have been quite helpful because then I could have said, oh, he's the guy that you get to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I I do tend to get to the shows where it's not necessarily dancing that's involved. It's They're going to do something to move, like an autistic boy, give it to me. Uh, (laughs) Shipbuilders, I'll have that. Um, turning a Harry Potter thing into something, I said, "Yeah, I'll give it, hand it over." So yeah. the things where you can't choreograph it, I normally get those jobs. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Well, I mean, but that, that in, in in essence, that is a a style or type as well. Yeah, it, and it suits me. It suits me very well because it means that I don't know how to do it on day one, so I can't go in and be like, "Okay, it's like this." <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So I feel it creates a very even playing field on day one. Hmm. And you, you just, I don't have the answers. But you just come with ideas rather than like a, a, yeah. a, a like a, a Bible of stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I look at something like Harry Potter and you look at what the elements are and the elements which you chose to use were cloaks and staircases. Great. Let's start making some stuff with cloaks and staircases. I love it. Very um, simple. <clears throat> I remember speaking to Peter Darling about it years ago and he said, um, I just listened to the lyrics. And that was that. The, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's literally what he said. He just, I listened to the lyrics and that was it. I was like, oh, yeah. It's, yeah it's oh, I, have to, I have to say, if, if it's a musical, I, I, I've already had my work done for me. I Because I, people say, do you want a dance break? Do you want to do that? I'm like, no, don't touch it. I will work to the piece of music as it exists and the sticks and dots on a, on a score. For me, that's half my job got done because yeah. you've told me exactly how it is rhythmically. I can see where the accents are. When there's lots of uh, layers involved, I'll build up there. And when there's a little bit, and it really is just like, you just, uh, sometimes choreography is the easiest job in the world. It's all, <laughs> if the music exists, already been done. And you don't mess with that. Because the structures sometimes, I'm working with um, an, a composer called Anna, uh, Anna Meredith at the moment. And she's, her music is so beautifully complex. And the time signatures are stupid, but they're great for me because I, I would never choreograph like this. Mm-hmm. But because I'm just following the music and its tonality and its rhythm and its layers. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, you just end up being brand new. And, yeah. it's, and it's challenging, yes, but it's, it's, it's entirely instructive. So I know exactly what to do. Good. I just don't know how to do it yet. Yeah, I love that. So as we round up our, the podcast or the the episode, I love always asking my guests this question at the end, is the give back. What would you give back to your younger self or an audience member uh, that has something inspired you? Maybe it could be a podcast, it might be um, a poem, a book, a film, an art piece. What would it be? Can I throw three things at you? You can definitely. You can just throw four right. if you wanted to. I mean, it's entirely up to you. So... Um, I was given um, what I needed when I was five because my uncle Richard, um, I went to my grandma's house and my uncle Richard said, come and sit in this chair. And he had these really good headphones and he put the headphones on me and he put um, a record on it. It was a Kate Bush album. It was her first album. And I, I, I can honestly tell you, I was five. And I could hear music in the middle of my head because the, the headphones put the music in my head, not around my head. Mm-hmm. And it was Kate Bush, goddammit. And he just made me sit and listen to the whole album. And I I can I do know that was the moment when I started to let my head tell me what things might be rather than what they were. Um, so right. headphones for me have always been a big thing. And when I'm not feeling great about things or when I'm looking for inspiration, I put my headphones on and go for a walk and you realise how the whole world starts to do this choreographic thing around you. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to music and just watching people do stuff to music. Yeah. Uh, I find that incredibly therapeutic. Um, I would say uh, uh, during lockdown, Kay Tempest um, brought out a really slim uh, book called um, On Connection. Mm-hmm. And I've used it as a bit of a Bible ever since. I think it's absolutely beautiful and anybody who's struggling with a sense of certainly creativity it, it's it's the thing that everybody should read um it it doesn't it doesn't throw um worry out of the basket it just makes sure that you don't worry about the wrong things and she's just every single sentence she's dead on um and then thirdly i went to see uh, a, a Jarek bischoff who's a, a a musician a composer and i ended up working with him actually um, last year on um, ocean at the end of the lane and i saw a live gig of his and the, he was just it was in union chapel the acoustics were amazing the gig was fantastic and he was very he chats to the audience and he's very, by the end of it you just want to be his friend or you feel he already is your friend 
And his last two words were, be kind, as he walked off stage. And uh, I was with uh, Katie Rudd, who's a director I'm working with, and we both just burst into tears, uh, even though we were very happy. And the idea that he could make us burst into tears out of a kind of joyous simplicity. And I've, I was thinking about it a lot afterwards, because be kind doesn't necessarily mean you have to be very good or be best. But be kind allows you to operate kindness even when you're not being great. And, I, and it just makes things a little bit... I just, I loved the, the, the sentiment of it. And I, uh, ever since that day, I'm always kind. It's not true, but I try to be. No, but I mean, you don't, we're not always kind, well, maybe to ourselves. I think we, I've had this discussion with many of my friends and people on the podcast about being kind to yourself, but also being kind to your space. And as long as you're actively aware... I'm present yeah. that you're trying to do that, then you can't fail because you but, might not also yeah. get it right, but you're aware of it. Well, I think to that point, sometimes the idea about being kind, it does ask you to think about the other person. Yeah. In a, in a real direct way. And, and in heated moments, you just feel you have to put your energy forward and outwards and it's got to exist in the space. Mm-hmm. And to be kind doesn't necessarily mean you can't do that, but it means you will ask them what were they thinking mm-hmm. or what, why, da, da, da. ask a why or a should we or might we have done that or yeah being kind just means you just well not to be on the nose about it but the 360 becomes a little bit more possible yeah which isn't always the case yeah I, I I clock myself in moments and I and I I've got a lot better um at being able to relate and to think about the why of the other person and how and should yeah even when it's coming out I then take a moment going how is this coming across how are they feeling rather than yeah. say it, take a minute, yeah. 10 minutes, then come back. Like I did it, yeah, I did it yesterday. Um, and, and so you just have to be that sort of 360. You have to be so aware of yeah. everything and how it might come across. I think also sometimes when, you're, when you are afraid of asking across, across the kind of wires, it, it's because you fear you're going you're gonna to not, you're going to concede something. Mm. And nine times out of ten, you don't concede anything. You've become a bit smarter about the situation. But it's hard for it not to feel like I need this to be the prominent thing. Mm. I yeah. need this to be the herd thing. I need this to be the narrative. And yeah. yeah, you you don't lose any ground by asking what the hell they're thinking, or even just gently like, where are you coming from? Or yeah, let me know. Let me know what's happening for you. Because everyone loves to be heard. Everyone loves to be heard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I want to say thank you so much for coming on 360 yourself. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. No, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, you've been 360'd. Thank you very much. I have. <laughs> Do I get a t-shirt? <laughs> it's be- it'll be coming in the post. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to our awesome guests. Please subscribe to our podcast to access all our amazing episodes. We're released every Sunday at 12 o'clock. We're available on all listening platforms, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram for more discussions, education, and inspiration at 360 underscore yourself. The host, that's me, Jamie Neal, on Instagram at JamieNealJM. If you do enjoy our episodes that you're listening to and certain themes and topics ignite within you, please email jamie at 360.co.uk and I'll read out at the end of each episode stories and comments from you, the audience, the 360ers. And remember to 360 yourself.